0: Josh and I are real excited to welcome you to what we're calling Long Tones. Uh, Basically, it's just an excuse for us to chat with each other and let you guys watch and ask questions and kind of just pull the wool back on some of the things that you're curious about. And, um, you know, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Steve Johnson. Uh, I own Virtuosity in Boston. And of course... On the other side of the screen here is Josh Landris, J Landris Brass in New York today, um, and uh, yeah, Josh, what do what do we want to talk about tonight?
1: So tonight's episode of Long Tones, we're going to talk about vintage instruments, um, why they're sought after, why they're collected, uh, why people might think they play better, and some of the mystique behind vintage instruments. Um, And we're also going to talk about what instruments have, how they've changed and what's kind of stood the test of time from vintage designs into modern instruments that people still use. Uh, From there, we're going to open up for some questions and answers. I know we have some people who've already uh, uh, reached out to us uh, through the newsletters and things like that with some questions and from TikTok and stuff. So we're going to get from there. Um, So first thing I'd like to talk about with you, Steve, is, you know, one thing that Everybody always brings up, it's like vintage instruments, you know, they're made better, they play better. Um, There's a really big market for them. You know, there's a lot of horns that sell for big money being used vintage instruments. Um, And just want to talk about why they're collected. Um, You know, we get in a lot of cool vintage horns. I'm sure you get in a lot of cool vintage horns. And people ask about them and, you know, say, oh, well, um, you know, this is why is this, uh, you know, so much more expensive when it's old and, you know, what's going on with that? So I'd like to shed some, some light on that tonight. So
0: that sounds like a great, uh, you know, six to 12 hour topic uh, that we could discuss. (laughs) Uh, I don't think we'll have that much time, but, you know, obviously let's, let's keep it brief. I mean, but, but it is, it's a, it's a big chunk. I mean, it for, for every new horn that sells, there are about six or seven people who ask about, uh, vintage horns. Yeah. Part of it, it, in my experience, I mean, part of it started with who played the vintage horns, you know, I mean, you know, because, uh, the, the early players, uh, because Bud Herseth played on a Bach C trumpet. I mean, you know, that was the first person who really turned some heads and, uh, you know the same sort of thing. once you get that that prominent person to take the leap,
1: then it becomes part of the
0: lore, uh, so to speak. And
1: that- yeah, like martin Martin committees, you know, everybody played Martin committees, you know, in that bebop and jazz era, you know, everybody from Dizzy miles, uh, you know, everybody played Martin committees. And still to this day now people play Martin committees because it has that sound or uh, Queen on flugelhorns. So that's another one. Um, that a lot of people always, oh, do you have a queen on Foolhorn? horn? It's cause that was the sound of the time. And that's what we've, uh, grown, grown accustomed to, sure. um, but, but, you know, some things that I find really interesting, um, about the vintage instruments. So I, I love old, words. I collect for those of you and, you know, Steve, I have tons and tons and tons of old horns. I got instruments going back to the 1820s all the way up to now. I have a lot of Bessons. Um, I think I'm up to like 78 best instruments. It's kind of crazy, I just like old vintage stuff. And when somebody asks me, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about getting a vintage horn. These people played them. Uh, you know, what do you think about a vintage horn? And, and, you know, I always like the first as a repairman, think of condition of an instrument. You know, there's a lot of old horns out there. And since I talked about it before, I'll, I'll just talk about the Merton committee. Um, we see a lot of Mark committees that are just trashed. I mean, they were very soft horns. The bracing was very light. They were easy to damage. You know, part of the design was resonance and you know lightweight. It was marketed as the extended range trumpet, um, but they got damaged and they were good playing horns. But when you have things that were repaired and smashed and repaired and smashed and repaired and put back together. And I'm not going to play as well as one. If you find that closet case of a horn that, you know,
0: well, I mean, yeah. you know, they were daily drivers, you know, they weren't vintage horns back then. They weren't uh collectibles, so to speak at that point. love that mug, bud. Uh, <laughs> but, but um, the, um, you know, the, it's a, you find this all the time. I mean, this is, you know, I, I played this day in and day and I played the hell out of it. And, and it's uh it, it, they didn't think of it as a collectible at that point. It's it like having baseball cards from the 50s. I mean, my my dad put Mickey, Mickey Mantle baseball cards in his bicycle spokes he <laughs> yeah, kid. You, you didn't know it, you know? Um, yeah. So, but but that was you know the quality benchmark, and, and, and you know that's why they're still they're still around. I mean, they definitely made more than a few of them, uh, but the ones that survived are you know certainly the good examples that we like to keep keep in
1: circulation if we can. Yeah. 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 Of course. Um, you know, it's, you bring up a good point. Like daily drivers, like these horns back then people, you know, the music era, when you had like, I'll talk New York a little bit because it was, it was a crazy scene. You'd have people who would play, you know, jingles in the morning, they'd go play, you know, TV gigs or studio gigs or something, then go play in an orchestra at night. And these guys were running back and forth and playing all the time. There was a lot of time on the horn. So it would get worn and broken in. And they were really great playing instruments. Manufacturers back then, and, and a lot to, to today, um, you know, back then it was really, it was a good job to work in an instrument factory. You know, you had to have skill sets. There were generations, like in the con factory, you had generations of a family working in the factory, and that's what they did. They were instrument makers. And stuff was made really, really well back then, and it held up for the players then, and then you find the one you know, that's been sitting untouched for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. It's just like, wow. Um, and, 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 you know, by all means that it could be a great instrument. It could be,
0: it could be a dud. I mean, you, you know, you just, you, you don't know, but uh until you play it anyway, I maybe mean, Stradivari didn't make all of his violins don't play the same. So you
1: know, yeah, something made like that, certainly something to consider. Yeah, of course. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, We had a horn come in the other day for some work, the vintage York, you know, really nice horn, but there was missing braise at the port going out of the first valve to the bell tail. Um, that was there when it was made, you know, 60 years ago. And it's like, man, how did somebody play this with a big hole, uh, in the horn for like 60 years? Yeah. Um, but we're, we're getting it squared away. Um, you have a, do you have a favorite as a, as a trumpet player, do you have a favorite vintage horn?
0: I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to air, argue with a front and air, C trumpet. I mean, I've been very lucky. I did get to play, uh, Mr. Ursus horn, um, at one point when Mark Ridenour was doing a master class and no wow, lastly that at that point. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, hard to argue with that one, but, uh, we had, um, we also had George Moshier's C trumpet here. That was also owned by Tom Rolfs. That's a,
1: yeah, you just, you just had that right. That, that, that looked one, yeah. beautiful.
0: Yeah. yeah gorgeous horn, and uh, to from what we understand, I think it was one of the last, if not the last C-Trevor that Mr. Magier um, purchased. Uh, he wow. passed away in 1950, and this was purchased in the fall of 1948, so uh, this would have been very soon yeah. after uh, Mr. Herseth and Mr. Nashen, who I actually studied with in high school, um, where both Chicago Symphony had left the uh, conservatory. Those two, you know, in terms of instruments that i would actually perform with those are you know right at the top of the heap the one that i really and i know you know this one because you you did some work on it at one point josh is that the Adolf sax cornet yeah that we had that was a, a beautiful instrument oh such a fun horn to play I mean, yeah that's that that's a, I, I i think i restored that one yeah I remember? you did yeah that was a wow it was like an Eighteen. It was written. It was made a couple of years after the Arvind
1: book was published. I mean, yeah, so, it was. It was an early horn. It was. Uh, oh, yeah. incredible!
0: And all those crooks down to I think it was down to G, if I'm not mistaken. So, but yeah, that was that was a great horn. Uh, I really enjoyed playing that one every now and then. Um, but you know,
1: in terms of a collectible instrument, not something that I might go out and play in public. That it's not your not your daily driver a uh, 165 170 year old cornet it is
0: not in <laughs> fact uh, uh, but it sure was fun to play yeah yeah that that was my you know that those are those are some of my favorites i mean i always appreciate the work that goes into some of these old instruments that you know you get the designers like Z uh, izzy albert meredith uh, who has got some really interesting stuff if you guys if anybody else
1: is interested the meredith cornet
0: yeah Yeah, I'm looking at some of these old kind of kooky designs that these guys were coming up with go on google patents and type in you know trumpet cornet innovation you know and, and look at like the 1910s 1920s there's some really kind of off the wall stuff that people were trying and some of it stuck and some of it did not
1: uh, yeah i i uh i look at because i i love you know old friendship instruments like i'm a big Besson collector right there's a French patent website that you can search, you know, 19th century patents and they have scans of them, right? So you can see them and you see all the drawings of the weird configurations of, you know, like cavalry horns, you know, where you had those trombones with the top pistons and the side pistons and, you know, coronets with eight pistons and all sorts of crazy stuff. It's really neat to uh, look at, but yeah, there was a lot of weird design stuff, throughout the years to get to kind of the instruments that we have now that have the designs that have kind of stood the test of time, um, that man, some of them are still amazing. I, I'm sure, like you said, the, the Mount Vernon coronet or, uh, excuse me, sea yeah. trumpet, you know, plays as good as a, as a horn today, if not maybe better than something. And, you know, still real special. It's a man, You know, and, and,
0: and I think that's kind of the, uh, You know when when we talk about vintage horns there's always a disclaimer you know uh when you say yeah it it plays you know say in some in some ways it plays better or some blades uh it's usable in a modern setting um modern is i guess a more applicable term if you're talking about an antique but yeah uh, a more you know today's uh setting and and they still do function but the disclaimer you know when somebody's looking for a vintage horn is Well, it's, it's much like buying a vintage car, you know, uh, this doesn't have air conditioning, (laughs) there's no air conditioning in this thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you, it's, you really have to stay on top of it. You maintenance wise, uh, and you've really got to just know what you're getting yourself into. And if you're okay with taking that for a ride, then, then, then you should be good, but, uh, it's the assumption that you grab a vintage horn, you know, put Whatever regular valve oil you want, whatever's laying around on it, and and you're off to the races is you know a dangerous um, notion to have because you know we, parts are not always readily accessible. I mean, you know, yeah. there's, are you know lucky to have shops that are able to fabricate and replace if needed, but you know that does take away from value. So you know, we there's
1: yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's a lot about condition, you know. You can have a horn that's in okay shape and been repaired and, you know, good older horn. That's going to be a decent player. You could have like the time capsule piece, or you could have one that was really, you know, like beat up and abused and played hard and repaired and crushed in marching band or middle school band, um, you know, back then at numerous times. God, uh, so you really, you really need to know what you're getting into. Perfect example. Uh, I had
0: just yes- yesterday with a, uh, a guy in the, um, a really nice King 2B Silver Sonic, you know, very, very nice horn, good condition. Um, but it just, a little bit of noise on the slide, and you know, those inners, those soldered on inners just, they, they you know, they're, they're, they yeah. said, how can I make this run like a new, you know, new horn? I said, well, you you, you really, you can't, unless you start replacing parts. Yeah. And, do, you know, you need a way. Do I want to have this as a collector's piece, or do I want to have this as my as my horn to play? Um,
1: yeah, so. we we do a lot of like, uh, you know, for for selling horns yep. that we have that are older horns. You know, we're going through. We're doing a lot of valve jobs on stuff before we put it up for sale, um, or if we can replace a lead pipe if it's old, rotted out, yep. or tubing that's rotted out because you can you can see on the outside it looks really great. But then on the inside, you know, things are worn. Some of the older horns uh, weren't made with the best tolerance of valves. Um, Like I've seen uh, as as great of a manufacturer in research and development and uh, amazing factory, I see a lot of issues with Con -con Constellation valves. (laughs) Like from the 60s, you know, they changed a couple different valve guide designs, they had internal springs, external springs. Rails on the side. You know, all these different designs. The valves were tight, but they never really worked well. Yep. Um, so and then from there people played them and then they wore in really poorly because there was a lot of wobble in the stems or whatever like that. And you have, you know, cons that are great horns, but the the valves leak like a sieve. Right.
0: Yep. <laughs> um, yep. I mean there that's then that creates playing issues too. I mean, you know. And if and I mean, kind of Side tangent on that. I mean, you're also if we're talking about a con cornet, you know, let's go a little earlier. Say we're looking at a new wonder, something you know, new wonder, Mm one of the early ones, anyway. If we're gonna just jam a trumpet cup, uh, cornet shank mouthpiece in there, like most most of us would do because it's comfortable, and then say, well, well, this is not playing in tune. Well, I mean, there is there is a reason for that um yeah it, because it wasn't built for that sort of off piece and and looking for something that's a little bit more accurate maybe a better first step and you're going to get the the sound concept that uh it was intended for the instrument anyway which i guess yeah. better in long run too so other i certainly yeah, the things have to consider there too um i don't you know i really don't want to change the whole horn around because you want to use a, a trumpet shank with a you know a, a scream lead mouthpiece. Right. But it's your horn. so That's
1: you know. i and- do yeah, it. Yeah, it, it kinda it kind of brings up uh, uh the next uh kind of segment, Steve, is you know it's a it's a good point because you talk about the the shape of the mouthpiece, right? Yep. So our our next step is like what are the differences between vintage and modern era um and what changed, right? Um yep. we touched on designs and patents a little bit of old makers and how they came up with all sorts of different things, but really the main design that has, has carried over for trumpet. Um, the just do trumpet for now is, uh, mm-hmm. the Besson trumpet. Yep. Uh, Bess's design. It was, I have here in the shop from roughly 1894, 1893. What is the oldest known modern B flat Besson trumpet? Mm-hmm. It's a uh, pretty cool it was smashed it's it you look at it and it looks like a modern trumpet and this is the earliest known it's not the earliest and it's the earliest known of a large group of collectors to this design right. and it if you look at it and you put it next to a modern horn you know i could have a, a brand new bach or a brand new yamaha kind of put it next to it be like oh wow that's uh, very similar in design yep. um but as you said that that cornet mouthpiece you know it's it's changed uh, evolution of brass instruments and brass playing has really changed. Very right. wow. Standardization, I guess, you know.
0: Yeah. And it...
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know, you no longer have unless you're playing, you know, some British brass band style cornet mouthpieces. Those old short shank that you would put in like a con wonder, yeah. you know, cookie cutter, really wide rim, really deep cup, short shank mouthpieces are not popular anymore. It's It's changed kind of design um roddy model yeah yeah or some of uh i, I collect contoured rimmed mouthpieces oh yeah um, um i have a bunch of them from the 1870s the, until like the one, 1930s different the, makers the ones that have the cutouts for uh for uh for dental uh, yeah yeah so it's got like yeah. it's got like a shelf on it like this yeah. you know and it goes up or they're slanted or overnight all sorts of different shapes yeah 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 i i I have a huge collection of those i love those but that's like a design that's been antiquated and no longer used you you get some revisions of it with like uh uh, dr dave harrison in the wedge mouthpieces, um where he's going you know for a more comfortable fit on the face for the shape of the face um but trumpets you know that that early Besson design that then bach brought on has really kind of, I think, dominated, uh, the trumpet market, um, you know, con made all sorts of different trumpets. If you go on the con loyalist website, you know, you see all these different horns, man, like looking at the pictures, it's like, wow. And none of those are really emulated or copied today. You know, you don't see companies like Adams, who just makes a Martin committee, uh, copy there, uh, the Adams, a nine, you know, it's a great horn. Um, you don't see them making a con twenty two b copy no. um, or a con fifty six or a con fifty six b. yeah, they you just don't see it. But, you know, you see that evolution of kind of that Besson into Bach design has kind of taken off and much in the mouthpiece, too, yeah. um, yep, absolutely.
0: I mean, yeah, you talk about, you know, you know Adams as an example of somebody who goes back. I mean, Bach did the same thing with Besson. so it's it's not that. We're only copying vintage horns now and and using them as a base. Oh yeah, All right. it's, I mean, this is this has been done back into the I would imagine back into the Nuremberg days. You know the uh, the guilds and 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 back with the Haas and Aha, you know, makers. I mean, you know, they had some they had to start somewhere. Yeah, tweak it to their their liking. I mean, you know, several makers have started by just adding something to an existing you know other brand. Insert brand here. You know, that yeah. kind of diverging on their own. So,
1: and and a lot of companies uh, did a lot of acoustical research. Um, sure. You know, like Mahillon and Besson and Kahn and Reynolds Shilkey. You know, the these people and companies they did a lot of research of of acoustics and tapers and um, you know how the air goes through the horn and the valve section and the airway um, to get to where we are. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's funny. Um, you know, people are always like, oh, it's a copy of this, it's a copy of that, it's a copy of this, uh, you know, oh, it's a Bach 37 copy or or whatever the case may be. But it's like everything was kind of copied and learned from and kind of evolved to get the design that we have today that dominates the U.S. market. You know, it's different uh, European market, you know, in Germany, they play different types of instruments than, you know, what we like here or the French style C trumpet Um, it's very different than an American style sea trumpet, but those designs have kind of stood the test of time. Yep. Um, yep. I mean, they, they serve, they certainly
0: served a purpose and, and, and I think looking back, these manufacturers are able to kind of just say, well, they tried this already. Let's, you know, and, and any good maker has their own library of, of these vintage horns for a reference uh, you know, Khan had, Khan had all kinds of reference horns.
1: Yeah. The, the, the Bach, the Bach vault. Yeah. Um, for anybody who's been to Elkhart, I'm sure they've uh, been on the tour in the Bach factory, that Bach vault. You know, there's some really cool stuff in there. Bach's original drawings, the Mount Vernon mouthpieces that he left that were unbuffed and uh, you know, kind of unfinished. So they had templates. Um, it's cool that they really, they have that stuff now and they can, you know evolve on it companies have evolved on the designs too um you know based on player feedback yep. um you know well, not only player it, feedback but
0: advances in technology sure. you know we can uh, reading mapping you know cnc technology i mean there's a lot of stuff that you'd have to you have to really think what where would we be now if this was available you know even even 50 years ago
1: 50 yeah the, the, years ago. The, the consistency of the the consistency of the product is sure. uh you know becoming much greater. Um, you know, it's funny, I have some some letters um, from Vincent Bach in the 1950s um, talking, you know, back and forth correspondence with someone um, in their pages and pages long. I've, I've put them on Facebook and I've published them on Trumpet Herald and stuff. I've shared pictures and images. But Bach talks about the consistency of companies in their instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's talking about Besson in the letter at one point, you know, saying, Hey, you know, this is 50. So it's post world war II." Um, you know, saying, yeah, Bach made some, or Besson made some really great instruments. Uh, after the war, you'll get one in 10. That's a good instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, you know, Eldon Benge he copied Besson's designs and all their flaws to put into his Benge trumpet. He's like here at, at Vincent Bach. You know, we make only the finest, most consistent, and then he keeps on going, and he says, "I suggest you buy the model forty-three. It's my most popular trumpet." But he he was saying in that that hey, manufacturing is not consistent. My horn's really consistent, um, and I look at those horns as they were still kind of inconsistent. Right. You know, I've worked on countless New York and Mount Vernon box and had you know all sorts of ones that were in amazing condition. We we just had a couple like time capsule horns come through the shop that we sold. Um, and they have, the consistency was there, but not at the modern standards, man, you know, CNC stuff and, um, it's, it's really amazing, um, and even measuring devices, you know, and, and how people can test. And that and
0: brings up, you know, kind of the argument there. It's kind of a double-edged sword because if you've got cookie cutter is kind of a pejorative term in this case, I'm not meaning it that way, but. But you have a cookie cutter instrument that's very consistent as opposed to something that's been, you know, really kind of hand, hand assembled and has slight variances. And it gives that, that character that mm-hmm. really would set up from me you know, the, you know, the aha moment. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, totally. It, I mean, Yamaha is some of the most consistent instruments out there right now, in my opinion. Um, and it's great. It makes them very easy to know what you're getting, but you know, if you, if you, go and do a sampling of another, another maker. There may be one that just has something special that you really can't put your finger on. So, I mean, and some people find that enduring, some people really enjoy that pursuit. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I kind of find it a little frustrating, but, but I, I can see why people would enjoy that. It's, it's a great, you know, it can, it can have a great result too. So, uh, yeah, the other thing I wanted to, I think maybe we should touch on Josh is not only from the the instrument construction standpoint, but from the buying experience. And well, it's is it's is totally different. You know, obviously, you know, we operate b- brick and mortar stores and we into- have mm-hmm. that interaction. But you know, if at some point, you would you write the letter, send away for a trumpet, and and that mail you mail you an instrument or mouthpiece, and and there is an expectation there's, you know, this, we're in this sort of period of retail where instant gratification is the, the name of the game. Yeah. And certainly that presents its own set of challenges for us on our side of the table, but, um, you know, it just, it's one of those, I mean, and granted, there are some custom makers out there that have a wait list and and have that, but they're starting to become, you know, fewer and far between.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of companies have wait lists.
0: These days, well, yeah,' well, have the oh. whole other story, but uh, yeah, <laughs> but but you know, the custom you know the custom I want, dear Mr. Bach, will you build me this trumpet, yeah, uh, you know uh is is kind of a it's almost a bygone era, you know, you... yeah,
1: send, send send them send mail in a check, and then they could start production, and the rest was uh you know c o d cash on delivery yep. um which you know, yeah, makers did that back then, and it was crazy i I have some old catalogs, and I always like. I think it's funny. Um, I have an old con catalog, and it has codes for the instrument, right? Yeah. So you you read the whole description. You've got the model number, and then there's the code that you write with it to when you're mailing in what you want. So it has like a letter, and then a number for the finish, and this, and a, and then a nickname, so that everything knows what it is. And it's like, wow, that's uh, it's really weird. To, you know, think of as a modern world that we live in that you'd have this catalog. So you had to get the catalog. Yeah. Maybe you go to a music store and they had the catalog. Then yeah. you'd have to mail in this code about an instrument yeah. and to get an instrument. It was like, wow, that's, that's really crazy. Nowadays you could just go online, go on the forums, read all about, you know, everyone's opinion on it or talk to other players who played. Hey, what is, did you, have you ever played one of these? Did you yeah. like it or, or whatever? And then you go down, you know, there's a lot of good places. To try horns and hopefully, you know, a place you can go and play it, yeah. something like it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, just to, yes, to, to go real quick. Yeah. You hinted on the value of it too. Oh yeah, I would, I would love for you to talk, um, you know, for your experience as a as a retailer, you know, the value of of vintage instruments and where it goes. I mean, and you deal with crazy stuff like saxophones. We're not even going to go there. Yeah, of like what some of the vintage a little vintage saxophones uh sell for. But uh what tell me tell me like your your thoughts on the value of, of old. Well, I mean, there's there's
0: significant I mean, there's significant volatility there, uh, you know, in terms of market value. And that's basically how we price them. I mean it's tough because, you know, when we're doing appraisals and that sort of thing, it's something that comes up obviously every time. Uh, and We have to clarify, is this a fair market appraisal or is this, an insurance appraisal for replacement? Right. Um, You know, if if it's an insurance replacement, you know, we've got some other considerations there, whether it's, you know, if it isn't indeed the last of its kind, then we need to figure in, you know, what would this actually be worth? Um, But the fair market thing, you know, there are so many different markets out there um, going at this same time and so many different variables that go into yeah. it. Mean, we talked about replacement parts. We talked about you know con- obviously condition. You know, uh, and then you get into the scarcity of things too. I mean, you know, that's perfect example. Of going back to your Martin Committee. I mean, a number three, uh, number three Martin Committee in mint condition in a deluxe version. I mean, yeah. that's kind of the cream of the crop. That's what people and but why is that worth more than a two? Uh, of the standard committee variety. I mean, is it? It's,
1: it's scarcity, scarcity. They made, they made, they made less of them. Yep. And it was, it was not the popular model back when they were making them.
0: Yep. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, it wasn't popular, but now, now it is because of the scarcity. So it's, and, and,
1: and the, you know, we just went people, the people and the people who played them, the, yeah. the provenance of who played an instrument or like, yeah. Uh, You know, the Martin committee, when I, when I first started repairing and doing this, Martin committees were cheap horns. You you know, you could buy a Martin pretty cheap if you could find one, Mm -hmm. you know, like early days of eBay, -Ebay, pre-Ebay, you know, it's hard to find one, but it was a couple hundred dollars, you know, they weren't that valuable. And then I look at it, you know, Chris Bode started playing a Martin committee and... People then looked back, it's like, oh, well, if he could play those, you know, and all those guys played those. The market started perpetuating up in the value of a Martin committee. And now, you know, you see some horns, you know, especially like the really rare handcraft committees. I've had some that have just been, you know, really incredible instruments in incredible conditions, sell for a ton of money. And they appreciate in value if they're if they're still uh you know kept in great shape. Um, but it's 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 really wild how some of those hold value, and then others don't. You know, it's it's the condition. You get the one that was smashed and relacquered, and you can't read see the engraving anymore. And yeah. Yeah. there have been, I mean, and and to that to that, and there are some. You know, you have these limited
0: run horns that are coming out now that some people are squirreling away, hoping one day that they'll
1: have a closet. Uh... Yeah, I think I think it I think it will hold. I think it will hold value if, uh, you know, from what I've seen. You know in this business is you know things appreciate in value and and now that the costs of things have become higher too um you know for manufacturers cost of living has increased there's you know economic issues in our country and supply chain issues worldwide after covid and things like that the the price of things has gotten higher so as the price of new goods climbs that vintage market is going to climb with it too so, if you're looking at, you know, hey, I've got some horns that I might want to sit on as an investment. I like playing them. I'm going to take care of them. you know, that I think they're going to appreciate in value. I haven't seen anything to say other I mean uh, as long as you as long as you get some time, you know that's yeah, you know, but it, and and to
0: that to that point, I mean, we know we don't even have to talk about vintage horns. I mean, used horns come up with that uh, with that market swing as well. I mean, yeah. the example I give is, you know i I, My first box Strat I bought in 1997 uh, is worth more now than it was new then. Yeah. Which makes me feel incredibly old to say, but it's, (laughs) but it's, but it, but it's true. I mean, and, and, and that says something to the, to the longevity of it, to the, to the quality that's in there. I mean, this is a lot that can be said with that, but yeah, um, you know, Pivoting, sorry, pivoting back to the to the vintage thing, and and the volatility of these pricing, we just we just came through a time period, you know, with with the pandemic that really kind of screwed with uh, pricing on vintage instruments because there were a lot of people who unfortunately needed to get get rid of them to get some cash, uh, artists that that just needed to to get some cash in the coffers, and that really drove prices down. I mean, you know, you you talked about my saxophone market that we have to keep high on too, and you know the Mark VI. That's kind of a litmus check for vintage yeah. instruments. Really, um, the price on those went way down. Yeah, and now it's starting to swing back up, which is which is you know good for collectors and and uh, retailers as well. But um, it's uh, it was interesting to see just kind of what effect that that has on it, and and you know yeah. and released instruments can certainly have that effect too, and. Uh, there, there's all kinds of these variables that just, you know, finish originality. I mean, you know, we've talked about this before, but what a lot of people don't realize is when you used to go in to have your trumpet service back in the fifties, sixties,
1: they'd relacquer it for you too, you know, man, that I, I, I can't believe you touched on that. So I was cleaning out some paperwork today. Like, um. I had stacks of you know stuff that needs to go into my museum that I hadn't put in. I found like I had some handwritten music by Rafael Mendez and some Rafael Mendez sheet music that was signed um, and you know some advertisements that I had. And this is a stack that I need to organize down in, in frame and whatever. But in there, there was this old um, Giardinelli, Giardinelli catalog um, and it had priceless for repairs and it was, to do a valve job on your trumpet, $45 to do one on a baritone euphonium, and then it was uh, $65 to gold plate your trumpet. $65 to gold plate. It's like, well, now I know the time change and inflation and the, the cost of a dollar and prices have risen, but it's like, wow, you know, now it's like over $2,000, yeah. you know, just in the cost of gold, uh, gold plate your
0: horn. And just, um, you know, so everybody's clear, gold plating isn't just like throwing a plate of gold over whatever's there. Yeah. I mean, if it's if it's a lacquer horn, it's got to be stripped and then silver plated and then gold plated in order for it to take. And 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 that's, you know,
1: there's a lot that's going on there. So, geez. Yeah. But it was like, it was $65 gold Oh my God. Yeah. Like when I got in the game, it was like, Two hundred and seventy-five bucks to gold plate a horn, yeah. um, just the plating cost yeah. of gold. Um, which was... Well, hey, and now there and... there are fewer and fewer people that are doing it
0: too. I mean, yeah, just it takes it's uh, that's a, certainly a consideration. I mean, and and for that matter, I mean, there's fewer and fewer people that are doing you know the old world, uh, you know, repair style you know stuff. It's 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 becoming yeah. uh, um, definitely a you know, market scarcity as what we Just like the orange been. So yeah. Yeah. There's some, certainly some things that we can attribute that to, but um, that's maybe that's another episode.
1: <sighs> yeah. So uh, Steve, I, we're getting some questions in and people are coming in chat. Um, I know we had a couple questions that people had uh, reached out to yeah. you. Um, if you uh, let's see here. The first, the first one, one. From your newsletters. Yeah. Kate, Kate yeah. from our newsletter. Um, so it says uh, from Dan, he asks, out of all the vintage brands and models that have been made, which is your favorite? Um, I, I touched on that earlier yep. tonight, Dan, uh, my favorite Besson. I, I am a Besson fan. Um, I've got some old Bessons in the museum and in my collection and for sale that are just really incredible horns. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were made very different than instruments today. I'm talking like the pre-World War II horns. Um, everything was made from sheet metal, right? So it was sheet brass, uh, it was sleeves on sleeves in the casing. The braces were made out of sheet. lead pipes, the receivers, the tubing was all made out of sheet. The manufacturing tills, the, the uh, equipment they had back then, it was all seam tubing instead of extruded and drawn tubing um, that was seamless. And some of those horns play great. I've got one in my collection uh, that's on loan to me from my friend, Dave Rogers, that belonged to uh, a very good friend of ours and a lot of musicians out there, uh, the late Hal Oranger. Uh, Hal was a fashion photographer in New York and a huge instrument collector um, and very fond of Bessons. And Hal had uh, gotten years ago from a scrapyard the 1926 World Sphere Besson presentation Trumpet. It's a miha. It's gold plated. Has jade finger buttons on it. It's engraved in three dimensions So they had like covered the whole instrument in wax, and then engraved it. Put it in acid to etch it down. Removed the wax and then it, uh, Engraved it again. So you've got a butterfly and a dragonfly and a mosquito on it. um In a like a lake scene, but it's raised engraving. It's lowered engraving. It's matte. It's amazing. Um, but I, it's like one of the best playing trumpets I've ever played in my life. Uh, Doc Severinson yep. once offered, uh, Hal a race car and a Mercedes Benz or a, a Mercedes Benz and a racehorse for the trumpet. And Doc told me that himself. He's like, oh, that was Hal's trumpet when he saw <laughs> <sighed>, um, <laughs> that I had it. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm really a, a big fan of the old Bessons, And I also like New York box, uh, being in New York. Um, I really like the old New York popcorns. How about, how about
0: you, Steve? I mean, you have a, a favorite yeah, I, brand? I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's hard to argue with a good New York box seat trumpet. I mean, you know, they're, they're, your New Yorker, or huh? Vernon era, especially, you know, that kind of sweet spot. It's, it's really hard to, argue. I mean, you know, they're rare as hen's teeth these days, but, uh, certainly, you know, there's just some magic about them that, that makes it. And, and, you know, we had a, a couple of them here that were, that were used in, in Boston Symphony at, at one point that, um some very slight differences the size of the water key nipple was mm-hmm. was a big you know was something that was different between the two but they were within a couple of years of each other but one had characteristics that were just favorable over another it and was, is it was very interesting to oh. see those sort of inline changes uh so yeah it's really hard to argue with that again you know the Adolf sax cornet that we had here was another one that i really just a just a craftsmanship i mean you know, picture the, these guys bending these tubes and doing all this crazy stuff by, just by hand. it's, it's incredible.
1: Are those, were that, that Adolf Sachs, Steve, just to, yeah. just to interrupt you real quick, speaking of the handwork. So back then, when this horn was made, this was, I forget what year it was. It was like 1848? No, 1860, uh-huh. 1860. Oh, it was a later one. Yeah, I'm confused. Yeah, 1860. So when, when you take a horn apart like that, um, and when I took that apart and you take the braces off. Underneath the braces, when you wipe away the solder, you see the draw marks on the metal and file marks where it wasn't finished um under the brace. Right. So they would these horns would be rough. They would solder them together. And then somebody would sit there and hand rag down all the imperfections in the metal. And they were using, you know, like pumice and walrus blubber, um, or whale blubber, things like that to polish in, you know, kinda get the metal down, but it's really amazing to think that like every time I take one of these old horns apart, it's like, wow, I can't believe somebody did that. Like, that's a lot of work uh, and, yeah. and that's, you're just not going to see that today. You to know, pre buff something before you solder it together. Yeah. Um, but this was not, it was not done that way. Um, uh, yeah.
0: so the next question actually kind of tags onto that and is a little bit more specific. Uh, you have a favorite vintage con trumpet. Do you? I, I mean, I have. So in terms of aesthetic, I, I really like the Volca bell, It's just got that kind of, you know, world's fair future car look to it with the, with the figure hook and the, and the seamless, but, and that, that the gauge on the, on the bell brass is no joke. I mean, those things are those things are thicker than they're... tanks. Yeah. tanks. Um, there's a cool aesthetic. I mean, the water key recessed water key, that's a,
1: it's a pain in the butt to work on, but uh, you, know. yeah, you get that spring hooked in there that goes around. There's a little steel rod in there, and you got to hook the spring in. Yeah, no. yeah those are a drag. Um, uh, Fleming is Team Vocabel. All right, go guys.
0: Uh, <laughs> but uh, but you know it's with the con. I mean, the old cornets are great. They're just I got that classic, you know, uh, you know Marine Band sound. You know, <laughs> that soloist. Um, but the, you know the thirty-eight B is. You know, also a a great, you know, great horn and one that remains popular with players today. Yeah. Uh, So, Con was great. I mean, Con made a lot of good
1: stuff. I mean, let's just be honest. A lot of different horns throughout the year. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of, uh, a lot of variety. I I think they made, they made more than, they, they, they made more than any other manufacturer of different models of horn. And they were all different. Every, Every bore size you could ever imagine, long bell, tight bells. Um... Yeah, I, I really liked, um, you know, from a cosmetic standpoint, it's a little weird, is the old 56Bs with the underslung third slide trigger. You know, it's like a really narrow pea shooter horn. Um, I've had a couple that were gold-plated and really fancily engraved. I thought they looked great, but um, I think the play, I really like a 22B. Man, you get a, a good condition 22B, that small bore, like your 38B that you like, um... You know, you hit a one with tight valves. It's not rotted out. Um, with the regular tuning slide, not the quick change to a tuning slide. Be more, th- I, I think th- those are. Th- I I mean I think it's a really good horn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in the early models, I, the later models are, are okay, but I like the early model, um, more than the yeah. late model. Um, uh, yeah, which actually is another good pivot.
0: So the next question comes from one of our. Um, Uh, one of our, uh, newsletter people, um, here at Virtuosity, uh, I've noticed that some of the vintage brass engraving often has a distinct style that differs from modern engraving. And I'm curious to understand why did something change in the process or what was the situation where the style slash era caused it to change? Uh, and he says, thanks. Love both your stories. Well, thank you, Ethan. We appreciate you. Um, so uh, I can I can tell a quick story about this actually because I I asked um, I was in Paris at the Selmer factory and asked to Jerome Selmer uh, about this because they had switched over recently to um, you know computerized uh, engraving and I said you know what what is the reason you know I, we always found the hand engraving to be charming and he said well workers comp <laughs> you know doing doing this all day. I mean, you're just asking for carpal tunnel, and and you know, yeah, and stabs stabs in the hand, yeah, stabs in the hand, repetitive motion. That's just like an HR department's worst nightmare um, <laughs> uh, in modern times, anyway. I mean, there there are some people that are kind of reviving the art, uh, which is great to see. Um, you know, some reengravings done and some new commissions too, which is really yeah. great. But uh, but yeah, I, at the heart of it, I think it's it's a cost savings, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, that I think it's a it's a lack of skilled uh, craftspeople that engrave instruments. You have a lot of people who do rifle engraving and stuff like that that do amazing work. I follow a ton of engravers on Instagram, um, but they're using pneumatic systems. And it's really funny that you, you bring up, I have just sitting here, I'm just going to step away uh, from the, I have literally right next to my workbench, speaking of amazing engravings um, that you don't see anymore. Um this was wild bill davidson's coronet um his king super 20 it's gold-plated but i I don't know if i can see it on the camera here but it's like engraved all over it's got his name engraved on it i mean it's the lead pipe almost everything on it's engraved um but there's not people who not so many people who do that anymore on instruments um when i came to new york um i met an engraver his name was jerry brownstein Um, And Jerry was, I think when I met him in his 70s, you know, this is like 20 years ago. Um, But Jerry was an engraver. Um, That's what he did. He was a master engraver. And he engraved Instruments for in New York, Colecchio, Vincent Bach. Uh, Bach, you know, some of the fancy engraving you see on the New York box and um, Egyptian hieroglyphics on... Some horns in the really fancy stock. He did that. He engraved for Rudy Muck, Parduba. Um, I said Colecchio. He did work for uh, Carl Fisher. Um, he was an engraver and he did work for me. Um, Ray Nagara, who owns a store out in Long Island, uh, Laconia Music, uh, was an apprentice of Jerry's. But the engraving was amazing. He was a master engraver. And before that, like Khan, Khan had uh, Jake Gardner, was a master engraver. Um, yep. and a lot of other engravers in the Steinberg brothers. Yep. I mean, this is a team that engraved instruments for years and years and years. It was an art form, um, that unfortunately just doesn't exist like it used to. Yep. Um, there's some real talented engravers out there. Um, there's some people who've been doing it for a million years, um, who've engraved all sorts of instruments who are, you know, like you said, the hands, purple tunnel, it's hard to hold an instrument. Um, that don't do as much work anymore because it's really taxing on the hand to hand chase something. Um, so I, I, yeah, that's why to me it's a, a the skill. It's just like one of those dying art forms to do master level engraving. One of the cooler
0: things that I've seen is um, Mark Metzler. I was visiting him once in Indiana and showed me the the book the the book of the masters uh, mm-hmm. for for each trumpet model. Uh, that had the the engraving pattern. Just it it looked like a tattoo book almost, and it very well could have been. Those are be big great tattoos. But oh man, the but there it was just very cool to see. You know, the, this goes on this model in this position, and it basically just lays down like a stencil and draw it out. And yeah, and then very, you they engrave through it. Yeah,
1: yeah, they had they had like shop. They had an engraving department. Yeah, um, yeah. and nowadays you know. You see computer engraving, and some of it's good, really good and nice, or acid etching. But I really miss, you know, the the stuff like this, this really beautiful uh, hand engraving. Well, um, I mean, that's
0: so I think part of the reason why the vintage horns have that charm too. I mean, and and maybe, maybe if that become, you know, has still the norm, it they wouldn't stand out quite as much. I mean Yeah, a theory, but you know, it's certainly something that we all kind of fawn over when we see that sort of stuff. I mean, some of the, the con and, and, and some are engravings too. I mean, you you have these landscapes and these very detailed scenes and, you know, it's, it's what did they just get on a tangent and want to go deeper? I mean, it's, it's, some <laughs> of them are it's incredibly detailed and it just, you know, yeah, it's uh, like a kid that showed.
1: If, if you oh, haven't, wrong. Oh. If you haven't checked it out, uh, Ethan, check out uh, Ray Nagara. He has the Musical Instrument Engraving Museum um, online with some really, really amazing stuff. Um, Steve, we have, I think, one more uh, question here that's coming in off of our TikTok. Um, for those of you who don't follow our TikTok, check it out. Um, have some fun stuff on there. Um, so it, this is coming from Hee Hee Ha Ha 50 says, what specifically is the best brass instrument for soft jazz soloing in your opinion? Thanks. Um, you want to you wanna take that one first, Steve? Or, uh, I mean, the, we'll, oh, the, the easy answer is flugelhorn. <laughs> for me
0: anyway. um, yeah. Or just practice playing quieter. <laughs> but no, I mean, flugelhorn's always been, you know, my favorite for, you know, it's like small, you know, small, uh, Small combo, uh, jazz. And Not that I'm the guy that's actually up there playing, uh, but uh, I'm you know certainly a fan of listening to people uh, play that play play that way. I mean, you know, but there there's yeah. guys that can get that dark kind of smoky sound on on uh, you know a trumpet too. I mean, Chet Baker and all those guys. I mean, it's just this is great. So that
1: would be my vote. Yeah, I I, I think there's um. You know, hee hee ha, ha fifty. Um, <laughs> uh, there's some really neat modern horns out there that by design are designed to play darker and mellower and warmer, um, verging on that horn vibe. Um, you know, Adams makes some, Van Lahr makes some, um some Martin Böhm uh, another European maker. Um some American makers, Mike Del Quadro, uh builds a horn that can play really dark, warm and mellow. And it also comes by design and um, throat size of the mouthpiece and cup shape, um, as well as the shape of the bell. It all kind of plays into effect into that warmer, darker sound and also it's natural um, playing. Uh, like I have a very bright sound. So for me, you know, if I wanna darken something up, I'm gonna go with a deeper cup in my mouthpiece more open throat, so I can use the the air differently to uh, play a little bit darker um, or or soft. But yeah, still flugelhorn, like Steve said, I think is uh, kind of the way to go on that one. Mellow, mellow, warm, warm. That's uh, really nice.
0: Get a nice flugelbone (laughs) solo in there. Might not be a bad idea, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So uh, thanks for the question on that. Um, And thanks, everybody, Uh, for tuning in tonight. Um, yeah, this was our, our first episode of long tones. Uh, thank you all for coming in uh, and joining us tonight. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our social medias, uh, Jay Landers brass for me and at virtuosity underscore Boston, uh, for more exciting brass topics and insights. Uh, yeah, Steve. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it for me anyway. I mean, and, and just make sure you keep an eye out on
0: our socials for, some details for episode two um if you've got input or anything like that please send it to our uh, to our accounts on the on the dms here uh i want to give a special shout out to jt and alec our producers here yeah man awesome Awesome things behind the scenes here josh and i are just here talking those guys are running around doing scripts and all this crazy tech stuff so we we appreciate you guys very much i know you're watching the but uh um thanks guys and and uh we are very excited to do this again. So
1: Yeah, Steve, it was it was great to see you and chat with you tonight, man. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, again, thanks everybody for turning in the long tones.
0: righty. Have a good night. Thanks, guys.